and the Emmy goes to Michael Imperioli, the soprano. This is Michael Imperioli's third Emmy nomination and his first win. In addition to acting, Mr. Imperioli has also written five episodes of the series. Oh, wow. Um, being on The Sopranos is like the greatest thing in the world, all right? For an actor, if this is the only thing I'd done, I'd be okay with that, probably. But to my collaborators on the show, you're my family and my friends, and I love every minute being with you guys. You're the greatest. I love you all. I want to thank Nancy Marchand, was very important in making this show great. I want to thank my managers, Tina Thor and Howard Axel. They're the best in show business. Roger Haber, Sheila Jaffe, George N. Walken, who brought me to this show. I want to thank my parents, my brother, my grandparents, my in-laws, my lovely wife, my muse, Victoria, and my children. And uh, the late, great John Cassavetes, whose work always continues to inspire and amaze. Thank you. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is a writer, director, actor, producer. Uh, we know him and love him as Christopher Maltesante from The Sopranos, but his career is so much more than that, uh, the great Michael Imperioli. So welcome, Michael. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for having me. Great. And uh, Michael, I'd love to start in uh, uh, probably not where you might expect, and that's to talk about your friendship and relationship with a great New York icon and musician, Lou Reed. Yeah. And I know you loved him. I, I am a big fan of uh, your book, The Perfume Burned Our Eyes. But talk about Lou and how he sort of came into your life. I first met Lou around in the late 80s. Um, both of us lived in Greenwich Village. And, and I used to see him um, walking around the neighborhood, you know, which was kind of cool. You know, I was in my early 20s and I was, a, I was a big fan of his and like seeing him walking around the neighborhood was always very, uh, and I saw him several times, always fascinating, you know, and special in a way. And, um, but I never approached him or said anything to him. And then one day I was at a Knicks game and after the game, you know, we were, I think I was like on an escalator, you know, kind of leaving whatever section I was in, in the garden. And I see Lou and I was like, at the time I had just gotten cast in a movie called I shot Andy Warhol, which was about Valerie Solanas, who was this woman who actually shot Andy Warhol, almost killed him. Um, but I was playing on Dean, who was an actor, a member of the Warhol superstars and was a friend of Lou's. So I was like, oh, this is kind of a, an icebreaker. Finally, I can walk up to him and introduce myself and, and I have something to actually say. So the only problem was he was really against the fact that they were making this movie um, because it's about this very insane person who almost killed his, one of his best friends. But I went up to him anyway. And I said, um, hi, my name's Michael. I'm an actor. Uh, um, I said, I know you're not, you're not, uh, you're, you're not happy about it, but I'm in this movie. I shot Andy Warhol. And he's like, I think it's despicable that they're making a movie about that psychotic bitch. I was like, yeah, I know it's, uh, I know it's a tough thing, but um, I'm actually playing a friend of yours. Um, I'm an actor and I'm playing Undine. And he just went, good luck. And he turned away. <laughs> and uh, I just felt stupid, you know, and, and really like deflated, you know. And then he was, he kind of walked away, but then like he, he turned back over his shoulder and looked at me a couple of times and he waved me over again. And he went, listen, um, do your, do your work, work hard, do a good job. And just remember, Undine was very funny. And that was it. So that was the, uh, the, the first time I met him. And, um, and then 
years later after the sopranos was on i think around 2000 or 2001 he was doing a concert at the knitting factory in, in which was in trebek at the time he had a, a new album ecstasy had just been released so I, I asked my manager to get me tickets to the show because it was sold out she got me tickets and after the show his publicist lou's publicist said lou wants to say hello uh, backstage and i didn't know that he knew i was there or knew who i was or anything like that and we went backstage and he was very welcoming and kind and, and and was a fan of the show and a fan of what we were doing and and uh that was around 2000 2001 and we stayed friends till he died we were involved in some similar charities like the jazz foundation of america and uh tibet house tibet fund um, he was into Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, as I am. And um, so we were at, we did a lot of those events together. Um, I spent a little time with him in the studio when he was rehearsing. And then uh, in 2013, I started writing this coming of age story as a novel, really as an effort to get into the mind of a 16 year old, because that's where my son was at at the time. And three months into the writing of that, Lou died. October 28th, 2013. And it hit me on a number of levels as a fan, as a New Yorker, as an artist, as a friend. And in that period of, of mourning him, his passing, I came up with the idea of putting him in the book. And uh, that first meeting I had with him at the garden, where he was kind of nasty and, and, and vicious at first, and then sympathetic and compassionate, kind of in an instant, uh, was kind of the seed really for his relationship to the boy in the book Holly came from Miami FLA hitchhiked away across USA plucked her eyebrows on the way shaved her legs and then he was a she she says hey babe take a walk on the wild side said hey honey take a walk on the wild side What a great, great story. And I know you're a musician also, which I want to talk about. But going back to Mount Vernon, there are certain places that for whatever reason seem to be incredible breeding grounds for talent. And I had Larry Charles on Great Minds, who's a great writer, a lot of comedy with... Um, He's a director too. Right? Yeah, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant guy. And I love his... Uh, Larry Charles' Dangerous World of Comedy on Netflix, where he goes to the, like, the world's most dangerous places and finds what's funny. And we talked a lot about Brooklyn and where he's from and how that is such an incredible reservoir of talent. So is Mount Vernon. So many people, Denzel Washington, Ozzy and Ruby Davis, yourself, David Chase, uh, so many others. What was it about where you're from, Michael, and Mount yeah. Vernon, that created such an incredible roster of talented people. Um, well, Mount Vernon's way, 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 way smaller than Brooklyn. That's for sure. So um, it, uh, it's it's interesting place because it's not quite the city, although it's on the, it borders the Bronx. So it, it, southern border is the city limits you could actually take the subway the last stop in the bronx uh 241st street and you 242nd street whatever and then you can walk into mount vernon you could walk to where i used to live uh so but it's not technically the city it's technically westchester county but it's not really the suburbs so in some ways there was you kind of sheltered a little bit but not really um and it's a very concentrated, densely concentrated place. It's very small, but I, I don't know what the population is. I should look that up, but it's only like four square miles or something like that, uh, but very densely populated and very mixed. Like there was a, it was a poor section. It was mostly, mid, most of it was middle class. And then there was a very wealthy section and it was tiny. Um, and on one side you had Yonkers, the Bronx, New Rochelle and the Bronxville, which was very rich. So, uh, but you know, you you can be in the city in twenty minutes. Uh, in Manhattan, you can be in Yankee Stadium in you know ten minutes or whatever. So it it, it kind of had the best of a lot of worlds. 
So I would say, I guess that's why. I don't know what else. And your dad, 30 years, drove a bus in the Bronx. Drove a bus in the Bronx for 30 years, yes. And uh, yeah, in from this, from like, I think he retired in 2000 or something like that. So like from, from or 2002 or something. So like from the early 70s. Right. Amazing. And you had, uh, you know, good academic, you were a good student, but decided not to cut a college and went to the Lee Strasberg Institute. I did. I just, I really, I went, uh, I, you know, I wanted to go to Columbia because my best friend got into Columbia, uh, and, but I didn't get in. So I was kind of bummed out. And um, so I got into state New York, uh, SUNY State University of New York at Albany, which was not really where I wanted to go. It was kind of like a um, kind of like a fallback choice. But I went up there anyway, because, you know, you're kind of expected to go to college, at least at that point, if you were a decent student. That's what you do if you want a good job or a career. But I went up there for the summer orientation, which was like a weekend during the summer when you stay in the dorms and you meet some kids. And I just felt like I felt like it was kind of a continuation of high school in a way like uh, and, and it just didn't sit right with me. And I wanted something very different, I realized. Um, so well, going to acting school, the cool thing was I was 17, but most of the students were, you know, well into adulthood, you know, in their twenties, thirties, forties, maybe fifties. So going from high school, being with teenagers and all of a sudden you're in a classroom with adults of many different backgrounds, people from other countries, you know, um, it was fascinating and, and exciting for me. And I liked, I liked that. It was, I felt like I was moving forward in the world. And I felt like going to, what I saw in the college, I felt like it, it was kind of just continuing kind of the vibe I was in in high school, which I, I couldn't wait to be done with. You know, I li it was okay, but I, I wanted to, I was ready to move on, you know. Um, at that time, I wasn't living in Mount Vernon. We were living about 50 miles north. You know, and Mount Vernon was, and Brewster was where I lived for high school years. And those places, I never really left Mount Vernon because my grandparents still lived there. So I, I, I always stayed, hung out with my friends that I grew up with. And I moved back to Mount Vernon after I graduated high school. And there were good places to grow up. But I really, I really wanted to get, you know, I, I wanted to get out of there. I wanted to be in Manhattan and be around artists and be around other actors. I mean... I mean, there's some, there is nostalgia for the old neighborhood, but I, you know, I wanted to leave, right. you know, I, I was ready for other things. And so you start going on, on auditions. And my guess is before you hit, you missed a lot. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah, of course. From, I mean, I didn't get, um, I started auditioning right away out of the trade papers, show business trade. It was a newspaper and, uh, Backstage was another one. One's called show business, one calls backstage. And they're newspapers that have auditions, mostly for shitty off-off Broadway plays that don't pay anything and student films. Once in a while, you get a good movie, sometimes a Hollywood movie, some, sometimes a decent indie that would be casting through that or, or a Broadway play or something, but mostly not. And I went on all these auditions and tried to get an agent. I really And, and four years of nothing, really until I finally got an off-off an off Broadway play. No, off-Broadway play that actually wound up getting a lot of attention because it was based on a true story. And, and um, I was the lead and I got fired after opening weekend because I didn't really know how to take direction because I had only been in acting class. It was really the bulk of my experience. And, and um, I, didn't, I didn't respect the director. You didn't really know much about theater. Didn't know much about acting either. So I hadn't learned how to be able to work with someone, you know, like give them what they need. But, you know, even if you don't respect them per se, I think they know a lot, but at least give them what they need so you can do your own work. I mean, that's a skill in itself that you learn from experience. And I, I hadn't gotten there yet. And eventually you get a break in your first movie, 1989, Alexa. My first movie I shot in 1988 
and it was called Lean on Me. It was a big Hollywood movie. Oh, Lean on Me, my mistake. Lean on Me was before Alexa. Yeah. Lean on Me was the first time I was in a movie. Actually, I did do an NYU short film, I think, uh, a couple of years before that. Okay. So I had done a film, but it was a small little NYU thing. Um, but Lean On Me was John Alvinson who directed Rocky. Morgan Freeman, who had become a big star by then. Uh, and it was an awful experience. Uh, John Alvinson was, I think, overwhelmed with like all the high school extras and kids. And it was noisy and... He had no patience for me or anybody else. And I had never, re- I, I, these cameras were all 35 giant, 35 millimeter Panavision. They're big lenses and cameras. And uh, uh, it was very intimidating. Um, and I didn't do a good job because I was so nervous. And he was very mean, actually, <laughs> and <laughs> impatient, uh, which made it even worse. So my line got cut out, but I am in the movie. But it sounds like as a young actor, I, I wonder now as you look back all these years later, did getting fired from that play and having some rough experiences, that must have helped you in some unforeseen ways that you may not have seen then. But as you get older and wiser, maybe you see yeah. a, little, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I think it helped. I mean, if if... Listen, when I started acting school, I was 17. I thought I'd go to school for three months and then start working on television and in movies and stuff. And probably if that happened, it would have been a disaster. You know, um, a lot of young people who have very quick success don't maintain that or don't maintain careers. Most of them don't. It's very hard to have a long career in this business, I think. Um but I think what it would have made me learn is that, you know, just because I had been studying and I, I was kind of, you know, it was a competitive acting class. There were a lot of really good actors in it. And I was one of the, you know, students that had a good reputation from their work in class, but there's no substitute for actually doing it, you know? Right. You can be in class and, but, uh, you know, actually doing a play and taking direction and being in front of a camera there, you know, there's, you just have to do it, Amazing, <laughs> you know, yeah. and that's how you do get experience by just doing it and doing it. And you're going to, you know, you know, even like, like practicing, like uh, I, my son is a musician when he was starting out I, and started to do live performances. I said, you know, one, when you're in front of an audience, your fingers are going to slow down by like 30%. So whatever you're doing in practice, <laughs> make sure you're doing it even twice as good because when you get the nerves start flowing and you're in front of people, but you're, those, you know, your, your dexterity kind of starts to diminish because you're getting, you're, th- you're thinking about it and you're tense. Um, and that goes for acting as well. I think it's a, it's a great piece of advice. And then the first time I saw you and so many of us saw you was as spider in Goodfellas. That was a year later after lean on me. Lean on me, I got my SAG card. Um, I had an agent uh, at that point. That year from when I did Lean on me, I had an agent. Um, And I had done two other little things in movies, like a couple of lines, indie movies that nobody really saw. And then uh, I auditioned for Goodfellas. And um, I knew what it was about. It was based on a book called Wise Guy, which I read. And I knew a lot about Martin Scorsese and uh, and I knew he liked improvisation. So I did a lot of improvisation in the audition and I auditioned for the casting person and she had me back to meet Marty. And then I auditioned for him and then I got the part. Yeah. Amazing. And did you, I mean, the caliber of everything about the film must have told you that it was going to have legs, but could you ever have imagined that the movie and your scene in particular with Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro and Ray Liotta would become such a part of popular culture, you know, to this very day? No, you never know that kind of thing. Um, um, I mean, obviously I was really excited to be in a movie with Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese. You know, I mean, I didn't really know Ray's work. He wasn't really that famous then. And Joe, I kind of knew he, I knew him from Raging Bull and I think Easy Money, 
but he hadn't quite, you know, Goodfellas is one he really kind of that was his career defining performance so thank you spider hey spider that fucking right. bandage on your foot is bigger than your fucking head you know that? Come on, you mean? Spider, thank you thing you know he's gonna be coming in one of these fucking walkers like chest on oh, even though you got that you could dance huh give us a little give us a, a couple of fucking steps here spider you fucking bullshit of you tell the truth you're looking for sympathy is that it sweetie why don't you go fuck yourself tommy But I was just like in awe of De Niro and Scorsese. Um, and then when we got on the set, I saw, oh, this scene is really with Joe. I, was, I wasn't really sure what the scene was going to be because it was mostly improvised. And I didn't really have the script. Um, but no, you don't know. I mean, obviously it has that potential because of who's involved, but you don't know. Um, I didn't know the rest of the script. I mean, I did feel I did something in terms of my business important because of who I was with. But um, And then you don't know, is it going to stay in the movie? Are they going to cut it out? Is it going to work? Are they going to trim it? So, you know, you, you don't really know. And uh, But that movie, when it came out, pretty much was a hit from the beginning. The reviews were off the charts. It was wall-to-wall -wall raves for Goodfellas, and I think rightfully so. Um, and it's a movie that continually finds an audience. Yeah. You know, like younger people get turned on to it. It's a classic now. So, yeah. But you amazing. never can predict those things. No, not, not at all. Despite the ingredients. And you establish yourself as a solid working actor. I mean, every year you go back through the nineties and the one I also remember of, I think it was about 95 was basketball diaries. Right. That was, what year was that? 95? Maybe. I don't remember. Yeah. Um, I started making a living, um, I think, even after Goodfellas came out in, in 90. Right. And I was still for another year, I think I was working in restaurants and stuff. But then shortly after, I, was, I mostly made my living, you know, before The Sopranos doing movies. Um. I didn't do much television, a guest spot on NYPD blue and a guest spot on maybe law and order or something like that, but not much at all. Most of it was film and theater, you know what, but I wasn't making really money doing theater, but, but mostly film movies, independent movies and a couple of Hollywood movies, um, which was cool. I mean, you know, to start to make a living at, at this was very, very meant a lot to me. Sure. You know? Sure. And somewhere along the line, you're uh, old Mount Vernon. You share Mount Vernon roots, is what I am uh, attempting David to say with, with David Chase. David Chase and I were born in the same hospital, yes. Uh, he didn't live in Mount Vernon the very long. He moved to New Jersey where he really grew up. Uh, but he was born there and lived there as a kid. Um, yeah, that came through the casting people. You know, Sheila Jaffe, Georgian Walken would cast me in a couple of things by then uh including steve buscemi's movie that he wrote and directed and starred in called trees lounge which david chase loved and hired them to cast the sopranos because of trees lounge so they would always bring me in on anything i was remotely right for and um i auditioned for david chase um and then and I, I was I didn't really think he liked me. David has a poker face. It's hard to really tell what he's thinking. And he's not a phony. He's not like that was fantastic. And you know, he just kind of gives you it straight. And I felt like I wasn't doing a good job. And but I'll be honest with you. 
there weren't show series on cable then. Maybe one or two, but nobody really was watching them. Um, HBO was not known for TV series. Uh, so, and I wasn't really a hundred percent sure of what this was. Um, you, just by reading the pilot script, it's hard to get a sense of the scope of what the show would eventually be. And I wasn't sure if it was more of a spoof than anything else with a punk. It was hard to really, I had never read anything like that, first of all. And a lot of it was comedic um, in a different way than Goodfellas was, you know. Um, so I wasn't sure what the hell, but I, what I was impressed with was some of the people they were casting, a lot of whom I had known and had worked with, like Edie Falco and Lorraine Bracco and uh, Dini Pastor and Tony Sirico and John Ventimiglia and Kathy Narducci and Dominic Kinney. I knew of most of those people. I didn't know Jim. I'd seen him in a play that my friend was in. I knew a little bit of his, I, I, I heard of him. I didn't really even know much of his work besides the play I saw. But he had a good reputation. Um, so I heard they liked me and then they flew me to L.A. to test for the network, which was I had never had that experience. I had never been flown somewhere for an audition and put up in a hotel. And that was a big deal and was kind of exciting. And, uh, and that was it. Then I auditioned there. And I, I think by that time, I was the only one testing for Christopher. Right. And as an actor, you've done you have such an incredible body of work. And uh, uh, is it a challenge for you today? You're still a relatively young man. You got a lot of years ahead of you. How tough is it for you to both embrace that legacy and the character of Christopher, but also want to get away from it and do different types of things? Well, I don't know if I'm going to be 55. I don't know if that qualifies me. Uh, listen, I'm 56. Rel so so if, I'm, if I'm young, you're young. Mentally, I'm young. Um, you know, this is the thing. Before The Sopranos, right from when I started studying acting, I was meeting outside my class with other students. We created our own like experimental workshop, which turned into a theater company. So I started producing theater. I, my first play I produced, I was 22. And started directing not long after that. And I... I by that point, I had played in two different bands, played music, sang in one band, played guitar in another, wrote music with them, and then started writing. Um, did a lot of theater as a, as a, you know, uh, actor, producer, director, and, and started a company and a lot of indie movies that friends were doing, and so a lot of the stuff that I that I did during those years, not many people saw because it was indie stuff and it was theater stuff and it was under the radar kind of things. So I always felt kind of fulfilled creatively. Um, and then after the Sopranos, the same thing. Uh, in 2003, in 2003, I, uh, my wife and I built a theater and we started producing new works of theater. You know, then I produced and wrote and directed an indie film in 2007 and um, directed a lot of theater at the in Studio Dante. Continued to do and started playing in another band in 2006. You know, so um, even if people weren't aware of what I was doing, I was always branching out, right, you know, right. uh, since, I, since I started in this business. So for me, it was never an issue. It was more the public as the most... I happen to be lucky enough to be in two of the most iconic thing, the, one of the most iconic films, period, which is Goodfellas, not even in the gangster genre, in movie history. And, in, and you know, one of the greatest TV shows ever. Not, right. not only in the mob genre. In the mob genre, those two are just like, the, you know, jewels in the crown, but in TV. Um, so people know you for those things because they were so popular. Um, but so I don't really have to do that much to, to, you know what I mean? It's, I just keep going. Right. Um, uh, you know what I mean? It's like, I think a lot of people have trouble when you're putting all your eggs in one basket, meaning, so you're, you hit on something like the Sopranos, 
you're on a hit TV show and you're one of the leads on the show. So now the dilemma is if you have the wrong management or agents are saying, okay, so the next job you get, you got to be the lead. You got to make more money and it's got to be a bigger hit. Well, and then you're dead because that's probably not going to happen. You may never get another job that's as good. You might, you know, there, you might not demand to make more money or be the star of the thing. You know, you just have to take it as it comes. Um, and that's my responsibility, right? You know what I mean? If it was just about, you know, I think people will always assume your goal is to be Al Pacino or something and have a career like that. And it's like, yes and no. I mean, of course I want to be in great movies with great roles and stuff like that, but um, it's not like, that's not, if, if that's not what it, what's happening, if you're not getting nominated for Oscars and starring in big budget movies, it's like, that doesn't mean you're not going to be happy. And right. that does not mean you're not going to be creatively fulfilled or anything like that. You know what I mean? When people assume that's kind of what your goal is, but that's, it's not really, I mean, you can't make that your goal. Your goal is to do the next interesting project that, that comes your way. If you can do that, you have a much better chance, I think of having longevity and being happy, you know, rather than always just chasing the next, you know, a lot of times they'll tell you, oh, this is a good job to do because it'll lead you to other things. I never believed any of that. Never take a job because this job is going to get you seen in other roles. Just take a job because A, if you need the money, take the job. B, if you like the role, take the job. C, if you like where it's shooting, <laughs> you want to visit there, take the job. Don't fool yourself in thinking, if I take this job, it's going to get me other work and people are going to see me as... No, take it for what it is and that's fine. I, I love that and your reference to creative fulfillment. I think that's great. You, you touched on it, but as I recall, you not only uh, ran a theater, but you you and your wife and your father-in-law built a theater. Well, they did. I didn't. I'm I'm not gifted with uh, building and tools and stuff. My wife uh, is and my, my late father, father-in-law passed away, was a carpenter. And my wife's an interior designer and a set designer. Um. But they built it. You know. And you had a great run. West Side? We were on West 29th Street. We did uh, only new plays that had never been produced. Yeah, we had it for uh, at least six years. And then after the economy tanked, we lost a lot of our corporate funding because it was not for profit. Um, and then it got, you know, you know, we had all the bases covered except for like fundraising, which is really important when you're doing off off Broadway, not for profit stuff. Um, but and I tried to float it for a while on my own, and that was didn't you know work out so well. Um, but you know, it was a, and you know, I try to look at that was the life it had, and you know, right? No, it's a lot, lot to lot, lot to be proud of, and uh, we'll go back to the Sopranos just a little bit, but. Uh, you also have had a great career as a musician and just had a new album come out fairly recently. Recorded an album a number of years ago, but never released it. And then this year, um, over the summer, I was getting a lot of, uh, doing a lot of press about my interest in music and stuff like that. So it turned out to be a good timing. So we put out the record on Bandcamp. Uh, now we're get, making vinyl 
of it. And um, we haven't been playing a lot of shows. We, we, we've done a couple of, uh, uh, I've worked with the two musicians, Olmo and Elijah on uh, live readings of my book, but we haven't played together in a while. But now um, I haven't been in New York uh, that much in the last couple of years. Last year I was, but I was working a lot. So we'll be playing some shows. Uh, we have a couple of offers for shows when things start opening up again and um, continuing, you know. And it's a little, the sound is a little reminiscent of what you would have seen at a CBGB's. Some of it, yeah. I mean, you know, there's, in, in, there's 70s influence and there's also 80s and 90s influence and then 2000. I mean, and some of the songs, uh, there's two of the songs One of the songs on that album uh, was written in the eighties um, by before I was playing with these two guys, um, but we, we kind of redid it together. So some of it is from that going back a ways, you know, literally in New York when I was, you know, hanging out at those places. Um, some of which don't exist anymore. Most of them. So yeah, it definitely is steeped in all that. Yeah. Fabulous. And uh, just to go, Back also, you mentioned uh, the Jazz Foundation and your love mm. of jazz. And one of the great pictures that I have in my office is that iconic photo, a great day in Harlem when so wow. many iconic jazz musicians were all photographed in front of a brownstone up not too far from the Apollo. Tell me about your love of jazz. And, and I know you've hosted that event, uh, 20th yeah. anniversary of the Jazz Foundation, which I think was at the Apollo. A Great Night in Harlem is the Jazz Foundation's yearly um, gala they do at the Apollo every year. Um, I, I've been on their uh, board, creative board, um, uh, for a long time now. I don't know how long it is now. Maybe, you know, 15 years at least, maybe more. Um, yeah, Jazz Foundation, you know, works with jazz artists and blues artists. Um a lot of whom are elderly now and sickly, don't have insurance, didn't have the benefit of royalties, you know, um, help them with medical bills, help them find gigs, help them find teaching jobs and, um, you know, and support them basically in a lot of ways um, all over the country. Uh, I mean, jazz and blues are uniquely American art forms, you know, and um, these are people who dedicated their lives to this and many of whom, some of whom have suffered a lot of hardships financially, economically. Um, and Jazz Foundation is, gives a lot of very direct relief to um, artists. And we did some programs at some schools in New York and, and got some of the uh, musicians into schools teaching. Um, sometimes it's paying their heating bill or getting them medical care or getting them off the street. Or um, after Katrina hit in New Orleans, there's tons of musicians. There were a lot of them were homeless. So sometimes you need, they need new instrument, you know. And I just love what they do. And their, their, their benefits, they have a benefit in the spring. That's the Great Night in Harlem, which is in the Apollo. Uh, and then they have the loft party in the fall. I don't think they, they didn't have it this year because of COVID, but in October, November, which is also a great night. Um, and they're just the real deal. You know, they, they just do, they, you know, um, they bring a lot of benefit and their events are just incredible because some just tremendous musicians show up and play and it, they just have this great spirit. Um, so I'm very proud of, being a part i'm proud of what they do you know and if but one nice thing about being a celebrity is you can use that at least to bring awareness to things that mean something to you and that are benefit for to other people at least and 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 this certainly deserves it and, and as do the musicians and i i commend you and i i, I love that uh, that that part of your life is it's something i feel very strongly about too and i think there's a specialness about those elderly musicians who didn't make a lot of money when you meet and talk to them. And there's a specialist when you walk into the Apollo theater. 
Oh yeah, I mean it's a legendary. I mean these were so these were artists who you know went through you know Jim Crow South and stuff where they you know weren't allowed to stay in the hotel they were or whatever eat in the restaurant that they were playing and had to go in the different door. I mean all that horrific shit that went on. I mean people who yet yeah, people were coming to see them play. You know I mean it's just you know a history that's it's heavy. You know, and these are people who live through a lot of them have lived through those things. Um, but uh, the Apollo's magic, you know, and it really um, if anybody there gets a chance to go to one of those benefits, you should definitely take yourself, take yourself there because you, you'll, you'll, you'll be glad you did. Yeah. So we're we're about the same age. And I saw one of your most recent movies was something that was on Amazon uh about a, a, a like sort of a quasi fictional but also real tale of a night when Jim Brown and Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X and Sam Cooke were all together in Miami and you played Angelo Dundee. Yeah, I think he's got a really good show. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> all right, that's what I'm talking about. Right there. Hey, okay. Bang bang in and out, Cash. Bang bang. Outside in and out. There you are. There you are. Yeah, One Night in Miami, which was a play that they made into a film that Regina King directed, the great actress Regina King. And um, I have a connection to both, well, kind of a connection to Malcolm X, but a real connection to Muhammad Ali. Malcolm X, I was in the movie Malcolm X. As a reporter, I had to interview Denzel playing, Mal Denzel Washington was playing Malcolm X uh, outside his house after it was firebombed. Denzel Washington, who's from Mount Vernon, and Malcolm X uh, lived in Mount Vernon at one time, I'm pretty sure, or his wife did after he died or something. And I think it was the Davises, Ozzy and Ruby, uh, you know, Ozzy Davis, uh, Ruby D, who, you know, got them the house or introduced them to, or maybe it was their house, something like that. There's connections. But Muhammad Ali, I did actually know, uh, or came to... Uh, the set of the Sopranos. I got a call from my manager said, uh, Muhammad Ali wants to take you to lunch, which was the craziest thing I've ever heard on a phone call. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, he's a fan of the show and of yours and he's in town or he's coming to town. And his manager called. I said, well, if he's a fan of the show, why doesn't he come down the set, the studio? Lunch, we'll have lunch there. And she's like, all right. And sure enough, it was a day I wasn't working. And I get there early and this van pulls up and out comes Muhammad Ali and uh, gives me this big hug. He wasn't really talking very much at that point. Right. But he was very, you know, present and very kind. He had a, he had a kindness to him and a sweetness that was huge. And um, nobody knew he was coming. So we walk into the stage and when you walk into a soundstage, there's the actual sets are kind of, there's walls, you know, the sets are like walled off. So you, you almost like building a little apartment within the stage. So you walk in the stage and there's all, you know, the crew hanging around and everyone just freezes. And, and you know, it's, this hush comes over as people just kind of jaws just drop. Jim Ganofini was in a coma in the show at that point. So he was spending a lot of his day in bed and he was taking a nap between takes. So we walk into this, the, the inner set, you know, which was the hospital room. And I tap Jim and he turns around and he sees Ali standing there. He just goes, holy shit. And then the whole crew erupted in applause. That went on for a really long time. People were crying and very moving. And then he stayed for a couple of hours and took pictures with everybody and signed stuff and was very generous with his time. And uh, I'll never forget it. So then I was playing uh, his trainer with the young Cassius Clay played by an actor named Eli Gorey, Canadian actor who, who's really does an uncanny job. Yeah. Terrific. Yeah. As did uh, Kingsley, Kingsley Benadero plays uh, Malcolm X too. And Leslie Odom Jr. was in that Leslie too. Odom. Yeah. yeah, I worked mostly with Eli and a little bit with um, 
Kingsley who played Malcolm, but uh, Leslie Odom plays Sam Cook. Yeah, fantastic. And that was on Amazon. Uh, what's your take, just as a person who's been so prolific on the growth of the whole streaming world? And you know, there are so many different ways now for a creative person, whether you're in front of the camera or behind the camera. Seems like it's almost an embarrassment of riches if you're in the creative business. You would think so, but it seems like it has not gotten easier to get work. <laughs> for I mean, from my point of view and from like colleagues' point of view, it still seems like a battle all the time. Um, yeah, you would think there's way more opportunities and stuff like that. So tell me about that. Know your life as an actor and people that you talk to, contemporaries – no different. I don't. I, I mean, it, it has to be right because there's way more content, but um, not necessarily. Um, listen, I mean, it's it's good. There's way more, you know, options and and stuff. And and uh, but people still struggle to get work. I mean, I yeah. I have. I mean, part of it may be aging, you know, because my colleagues are of a similar age or came up when I came up in the 80s and they're getting older and maybe there's less roles, that kind of thing, too. So mm -hmm. that might be part of it as well. Mm, interesting. And as you look back on, you know, The Sopranos, one of the we just my wife and I just rewatched the whole thing uh, during the COVID era. And. The one scene that I, I'd be remiss not to ask you about is the scene with you and uh, Paulie in the Pine Barrens. Hello? So I'm going to talk fast. The guy you're looking for is an ex-commando. He killed 16 Chechen rebels single-handed. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, nice, huh? He was with the Interior Ministry. Guy's some kind of Russian Green Beret. This guy cannot come back to tell this story. You understand? I hear you. Oh, Paulie. Oh, you there? I fuck! Call me back! You're not gonna believe this. He killed 16 Czechoslovakians. Guy was an interior decorator. His house looked like shit. Was that a memorable scene for you? It was. I mean, it was, um... It was a lot of fun. I mean, fish out of water stuff is always fun, right? You know, it's kind of the ultimate fish out of water scenario that Pine Barrens. Uh, the, the, the whole thing about that is it was not written to take place in the snow, but it wound up snowing like a few days before we were supposed to shoot in Harriman State Park in upstate New York. And there was actual talk about postponing it because this big blizzard was coming in. And then someone was like, wait a second. This is going to be, this is a blessing. It's going to make it even more of an alien landscape. It's like they're on the moon and it certainly was. Um, but yeah, that was just a lot of fun. By then, Tony Sirico and I had been become very, very close. And I always enjoyed acting with him. <laughs> and to have that much stuff with him was really fun. I mean, it's like a little movie unto itself, you know? Yeah, no, very, very memorable memorable and you also over time became quite close with james gandolfini yeah we became close really from the first season i mean we became friendly very right away um you know um jim and i were a lot closer in age than our characters were we were only like four or five years apart so there's a lot of people always think did he give you advice? Was he, I mean, he wasn't like a mentor at all. I mean, he was, we were pretty much the same place in our careers. We had done about the same amount of work. We'd, you know, done some big movies and gotten some attention, did a lot of theater and stuff like that, but hadn't really hit. Um, I was actually married, had two kids. He, it was before he was married or had a kid. So, um, you know, we were buddies. We became buddies very, very quickly, but, um, yeah, I think a lot of people kind of think that I had this like father-son kind of like Christopher did with him. Right. He was a father for right. Christopher right. in a lot of ways. Right. But that wasn't our relationship at all in real in life in, in real life. Right. Yeah, a, a great loss for everyone. And um looking ahead, Michael, you've done so much, so much in television, so much in film. Um 
written. I know you got a podcast now that you're doing. What else is out there when you lay awake at night and you say, boy, I'd love to do, you know, A, B or C. Is there something that's out there that you want to um, take on or is it just there's stuff that's here <laughs> in here, <laughs> not out there per se. Right. No, I have a couple of projects that I'm working on now. Uh, one is a new uh, novel that I started recently over the summer. Uh, and then I have two uh, series ideas, one that I would be in and one that I would not be in, but I'm, you know, writing both of them. They're kind of in, you know, there's one of them, there's some, some good interest right now. I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but one of them may come to fruition sooner than later. Um, and, uh, and, and music, you know, you know. great. Well, so, listen, I mean, hope- I don't really, I'm not someone who's, a lot of times, is there a role you want to play? And I never have that in mind or anything. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't really, you know, I like the stuff that I'm working on, but in terms of what's out there, there's not, there's not something that one thing or another that I really want to do or haven't done or that kind of thing. Great. Well, listen, I hope when uh, things get back to normal and your band comes to New York, I'd love to come see you. I thought the, yeah, I thought the, I thought the, I thought the album was, was terrific. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, hopefully that'll be sooner than later. Yeah, well, we'll get this light at the end of the tunnel now, finally. There definitely is. And I also liked what you did on Instagram to support uh, the election of Joe Biden. Yeah, well, (laughs) I, um, you know, what happened is, I don't know, we out of time? Do you have a few more minutes? No, no, of course. No, no, go ahead. Not out of time at all. I went on Instagram about a year ago. And, um, I always assumed everyone knew everything about me, like knew all the stuff. I mean, most people had no idea of the stuff that I've done outside of like major stuff and independent, and, you know, um, and a lot, and, and a lot of fans kind of, I think thought I was like Christopher really. Um, so sometimes I'd post stuff and I'd get, I'd noticed, you know, and I made an effort to post things that inspired me. Artists, writers and filmmakers, movies, music, posting a lot about Buddhism and um, certain causes and political things that I felt very important. And I wasn't prepared, but there was a lot of people who don't agree with some of those causes or political, (laughs) very much so. And very much in the Soprano fandom. And some of them are very, you know, extreme one way to the point of being disturbingly extreme and racist and things like that, which I wasn't quite prepared for. But that yet these are people who like what the work we've done, you know, or the work I've done. So part of me wanted to let people know more of who I was, you know. Um. And the political situation this year, I felt was very important. And I, you know, I kind of, sometimes it was out of a lot of anger, you know, you see what's going on and then you're like, well, maybe I want to write about this or say something about this. And then people were very upset with my political views or say, well, uh, don't get political or keep to acting and stuff like that, whatever that is. And it's like, this is my Instagram page. (laughs) It's where I express my views. You know what I mean? I never talk about politics on Talking Sopranos podcast because that is about the Sopranos. It's a podcast about the show. People go there to kind of just immerse themselves in in that. And I and I respect that. And I, I don't feel like it. And it's not about just about me. It's Steve as well. And it's not meant to be about politics. But on my page, it's about my opinions. Um, and a lot of people get offended by those things. And then they were like, Tony would be turning over in his great, you know, uh, you know, stupid shit like that. So I kind of took it to a little bit of an extreme position. Uh, but, you know, it was, it was kind of a coping mechanism, really. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, I think pe- people are always like, why don't you just not, t-? you know, it's like, Listen, if you're in the uh, most of the people who say that stick to acting is because they don't agree with your politics. If I was promoting the political stuff, they agreed and they wouldn't say those things. So I get where it's coming from. But I think um, 
I think it's good that, uh, listen, there were a few people who wrote to me and said, you know, I was on the fence about this election and you made me aware of a couple of things and kind of influenced me in this direction. So sometimes it is good to, if, if you are informed in some way or passionate about things, about issues and stuff. Um, there were also a couple of like organizations and issues that I supported that meant a big deal, you know, especially dealing with like minor marginalized people and people who feel marginalized by society. I shouldn't say marginalized people, but they feel they are marginalized by mainstream society. And they're fans of yours. And it means a lot to them that someone who they know or is in the public eye is supportive of their, you know, of their causes, you know, and, and, and supportive of their, of their humanity. Um, Listen, if you don't like it, then don't follow me. <laughs> right. It's that simple. Right. That's, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm not going to, you know, you can watch the show. I, I mean, listen, I, 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 when I watch a movie, I'm not getting involved in the political opinions of people, you know? Um, so it was an interesting experience. It was a, it was a real learning thing. Cause I, you know, Instagram is quite amazing. Uh, and really it has changed my life in a lot of ways. I'll be honest with you because it, I had never had a, relationship to my fans in that way you know you can relate and interact directly without kind of the filter of pr and publicity it's just very direct a lot of positive things came out of it to be honest with you yeah i think you sort of ended up you know accidentally at the intersection of two things that people are very passionate about which is the sopranos and politics yeah and very divided you know the fans are the fans run the gamut, you know, from far left, far right, and everything in between. Yeah. And I didn't know that. You know what I mean? I kind of assume that everyone's kind of thinks like me, which is very presumptuous, obviously. And, uh, uh, um, but, um, you know, it was a period of adjustment, too, you know. Um, but I have a lot of great relationships with fans now, which I find really fun and interesting and uh you know and a lot of people are like listen i don't agree with your point of view and your politics but i respect you and i appreciate right. you you know a lot of people have that kind of attitude and i uh, doesn't affect how i see your work and i still follow you and it's okay you know um and some people are the opposite and say horribly vile things and just want nothing to do with you or whatever and want you know but this is a very divided time um yeah I think when Biden said, you know, just because we don't believe the same thing, you know, we're not enemies. We're still all Americans. And I, I hope we can get back to that. I think that's the thing that really got damaged here, because I don't remember a president, either Democrat or Republican, who, once they were elected, demonized the other side constantly, not just demonize the other politicians, but the citizens who were politically opposed to them. I don't remember that from Bush senior, Bush second, whatever. Um, I don't remember that. Once they were president, they were president for everybody. It wasn't like us versus them. And that I think was very, very bad, really bad. There were a lot of bad things. You know, that was one of them. Um, but uh, I think, you know, it's going to take some, some, some time and some doing. Um, you know, hopefully we'll, you know, we'll, come out you know come out of this better or you know or united you, you, here's the the thing that i keep saying is we all want the same thing that's the irony of the whole thing we're so friggin' divided yet everyone what, what do you want you want a decent job that pays you okay you can have a decent place to live you want your kids to be safe and go to a nice school and have access to education and higher education you want health care that's not going to choke strangle you or you know free health care whatever it is you don't want crime, you know, you don't want to fight wars if you don't have to or whatever. But so everybody wants this. Everybody wants the same thing. Right. Yet we're so divided. It's yeah. very strange. You know? Yeah. And this whole demonization is you, you use your word, you know, that the Democrats don't want to, sh they want to shut down the economy. We all want the economy to be open. We all want, you know, there's, 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 there's a, my office is on 35th and there's one of those old school, you know, shoe shine guys right next to my office. And, you know, if this guy shines yeah. one pair of shoes a month now, it's a lot. We all want Tony, the shoe shine guy to be okay. You know, that's not a democratic thing or a Republican thing. 
Uh, no, and listen, now that the election's over, uh, it's not like that, you know, they don't have any motivation, according to them, you know, to, to the way they were demonized. They don't have the motivation to be shutting down the economy. They're doing, you know, they have to make restrictions to prevent the spread of this disease. I mean, it's a, listen, it's a very difficult situation to be in for anyone, president, governor, whatever. Uh, I mean, you got to find a way to get through it without, you know, everything going down the drain. But but um, I think if things were handled differently in the beginning, we would not be in the same mess we are in yeah. now, but they weren't, they were politicized and that was the pro part of the problem. Um, but hopefully we'll, I mean, it's going to take quite a bit to unite us. You know, we are Americans and, and, and but you know, I keep saying that we, we all want the same things. Yeah. No, you really do. You're absolutely the essential right. things we want is not necessary. It's not really political. Right. You know? Yeah, no, you're right. I remember um, my early career was in sports and I used to go to Atlantic City a lot in when Trump owned his casinos. And I was friendly with a lot of the guys that ran his sports and entertainment business. Do you remember the the Catskills era? Yeah. So the guy that ran his whole sports and entertainment business, all the big fights. And remember when Tyson used to fight in Atlantic City all the time? Um, was a guy named Mark Edis. And his it was either his mother or grandmother was Jenny Grossinger. Grossinger's was one of the big, big the, resorts. The hotels up there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Mark's brother, Mitchell, I think he just retired, but he ran, it was either Foxwoods or Mohegan Sun, one of the big Connecticut casinos. And Mark, they used to have the big press conferences for the fights when Trump owned the plaza. And I think it was for the Duran-Barkley fight and there was a helicopter crash. Three of the Trump executives went from New York back to Atlantic City and the helicopter crashed. And one of them was Mark and he died. He was only about 36. Oh. I was very close to him. I went to the funeral. And I thought for a guy that owned casinos and had a pretty good run in Atlantic City before he went bust, it was very telling that at the inauguration, there were no performers that anybody had ever heard of other than Sam Moore of Sam and Dave, who I'm guessing just needed the money and took, you know, the 5,000 bucks or whatever they paid him. Because as you know, from what you do with the jazz, a lot of those guys don't have any money. And it was very telling. And then you look on the other side, you know, all the people, people like yourself and, you know, Bruce Springsteen and others who have been such passionate voices, you know, to restore sanity to this Springsteen wrote a really interesting thing, basically saying there's no art in this White House. Basically what you're saying, you don't see that relationship with, you know, artists, musicians or, you know, performers, you know, at, you know either doing a concert or there in Washington or the White House. It's, you know, it's got it's. There's also not a lot of. You know, it'd be great to see, you know, he if you would have seen Trump like throwing a ball around with, with Barron on the lawn or something like that, or, you know, you know what I mean? Something that it's, it's either him in the white house or him on the golf course. There's not a lot of, you know, family stuff. There's not a lot of humanizing elements to him as, right. as art would do to show that he's passionate about them. I mean, everyone loves it, but there's, you know, those humanizing elements kind of gotten taken away. Either he wants to keep that from the public or I don't know, they're not that important to him or whatever it was, but I think that hurt him. Yeah. In in a lot, but there was a lot. There was a lot of things that hurt. Oh uh, yeah, that was it's a long, um, but, it's a long, it's a long that, list. You know, if you think about it, it's like you used to see Obama in Hawaii on the beach with his kids and playing and stuff. It's like you know, Trump's kid is young. I mean, he's a teenager, or yeah. how, I don't know how old is Barron? Thirteen or fourteen? Yeah, so, yeah you know? something like that. Yeah, I I don't know if I've last time I've seen a picture of them together, or doing something together, or hanging out together, or whatever like that. Why? why? You know, why yeah. not? He may you know, not be the kind of dad that you sounds like you are. And then I, I guess I not, Yeah, but that most people are, you know, yeah. I mean, I think it would have, but he may be in private. I don't know, but, but why not? I think that would have really helped. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Well, uh, thank God. Know. Thank God. We all, thank God we all where we are. And there's some light at the end of the tunnel. There's some light at the end of the tunnel. Yes. Thank We still are a democracy uh, as of this morning. And you know, our voices do get heard. Great. So Great. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It was an absolute joy to talk to you. And if you do the jazz foundation thing again, I'll please ask me and I will be glad to support it. I love, 
um, what they do. And I, I, we didn't talk about it much, but I know you also do a lot of great stuff for uh, Tibet and the cause there. And I know that's, that's, I know that's very, very near and dear to you. Yeah. Um, If you, uh, yeah, you should get on the jazz foundations email list. Because they have stuff that, um, not just the big benefits, but stuff during the year, you know, little events that are always really cool. Yeah, I, I uh, got to, through this whole Great Minds the podcast thing, I had some great uh, conversations. I had a Sopranos colleague of yours, Stevie Van Zandt, on. But I also did Steve Cropper, who was lead guitarist in Booker T and the MGs. Yes. And uh, Darlene Love, the great singer. Darlene Love is fantastic. And oh, that's cool. And the stories that they tell about, you know, the story and the challenges, and you referred to it, the Jim Crow era, you know, that these great performers would be adored by white audiences, but then not be able to go into a restaurant, you know, have to stay in the one hotel that was reserved for blacks and get hassled by the cops for nothing, you know, and, and we're still living through a lot of that stuff today. Yeah, I know. Incredible. Yep. Great. Michael, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. It was fun. Stay healthy. You take care. All right. Bye-bye.